Choose Linux, episode 13, for July 11th, 2019. Hello and welcome to the show that captures the excitement of discovering Linux. I'm Joe. I'm Drew. And I'm Mel. And here we are for episode 13. And we will be talking about some media stuff a bit later, but let's start with distro hoppers. Last time we hit the random distribution button on DistroWatch and it came up with Cubes OS, which sounded very interesting. And I'd kind of heard of it before. L, you had actually used this before, but it was quite some time ago, right? Yeah, I used it about four years ago now. Wow, and had it changed in the meantime? It has. First of all, I was able to get back into it after rebooting, so that's a big plus. Um, But I think overall, the general just look and feel of it has really stayed the same, but the functionality of it, I think, really shows a lot of growth. Now, this is ostensibly based on Fedora with XFCE, but it has a lot more depth than that. Yes, it is a virtualization-based, hyper-secure operating system, and it's designed to make working with a lot of detached, specialized containers accessible and easy to use. It's actually really, really cool. Now, I would actually correct you there and say not containers, but virtual machines, and that's a really big difference when it comes to this operating system. Yeah, pretty much anything you want to do with it spins up a new Zen VM, And you can either have Fedora or Debian or just pretty much whatever you want. Yeah, it's basically security by uh, decompartmentalization. So it's doing a lot of the same things that containers are trying to do these days, but it does it well. In fact, when I first started looking at cubes, I was thinking, why not just use containers? They're sandboxed, but this is so much more. I think it's everything I've wanted from containers, but just never got, you know, like, yes, I do spend a lot of time in the command line, but using the GUI is so much easier at times. So the ability to just spin up and spin down entire graphical interfaces for something as simple as checking my email was a really cool experience. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, these VMs aren't sharing file systems or other resources means that it's much, much harder to exploit anything in this system. Whereas if you have like a snap or a flat pack, they're still connected to your home directory. So they can still get to what Cubes is calling DOM zero and leverage an attack that way. That's not really the case here with Cubes. I had a really interesting use case that came up. Um, I recently went to a security conference where I was telling people about how I was studying for my Security Plus, and someone offered me their notes. So I come home, and I have an email with an attachment from somebody who I randomly met at a security conference, and I just have to hope for the best at this point that I'm just going to open this up. So I actually moved over to uh, the Cubes OS and I opened it up in their disposable anonymous VM. And I was, you know, happily, there really were notes there. But I think I felt a lot safer opening up that file. I might not have opened it up otherwise, to be honest with you. And so you were able to open that in a VM that's completely separate from the rest of the system, right? It's got no network access, no access to the file system. So even if it was just the worst malware, you could just destroy that VM and it'd just be gone. Yeah, it was it was interesting. So you open up a VM for your Thunderbird application. So it's an application VM running Thunderbird. And then you download your attachment. Then you open that up and the attachment actually opens up in a second VM. So 
it's not even compromising your male VM. So yeah, it, it's completely isolated. Had it been something, I could just close it, delete it, and move on with my life like nothing ever happened. Now, the first question I have for you is how much RAM is in that machine? Presumably a lot, because you need a lot for this. All right, so funny story. Um, I borrowed a machine because I wanted to do a full hardware install, like just bare metal install. And my first complaint was, oh my God, this is so slow. It was getting the job done, but I figured I'm coming from the land of containers. Anything over five seconds is taking too long. But I kind of went in, I started looking at it, and I only had four gigs of memory on this machine. And it was still working. I mean, it was taking 30 seconds to get the VM up, but realistically, that's not bad for four gigs of RAM. Yeah, I was really surprised at how well it utilizes whatever resources you have in there. Like I was using this on a laptop with eight gigs of RAM. And yes, there is some slowness to when it would spin up a new VM for the application that you called, but it's really not that bad. I mean, under 30 seconds to spin up a whole VM and launch the application inside of it and then present it to you in a window, it's not terrible for the security that you're gaining here. Now I have a question for you guys. When you spun everything up, did you or were you using a USB keyboard? And if you were, did you have problems getting it recognized? I did not use a USB keyboard. I had it uh, directly on a laptop. So I did not run into that. Well, this is the point where I admit that I actually failed at this. I did get it installed, but unfortunately, the test machine that I installed it on has got like a second Gen i3 or something that doesn't support the hardware virtualization required for it. So I got the error during installation. I was just like, oh, it'll be fine. And no, just nothing would work at all. So I was just completely in the dark on this one until Alex Rodriguez sent us a link on Twitter to a video about Cubes, which was a, a presentation which just explained everything about how it works and I, so I feel like I have used it, even though I haven't used it, because it was such an excellent presentation. It's like 50 minutes long and super in-depth, and I would highly recommend it. I'll stick a link in the show notes um, for anyone who's curious. But without that, I would have been a bit lost here. So I'd, I kind of know what's going on. And I think that keyboard issue is because keyboards are treated as a security risk because there's a lot of USB keys that kind of pretend to be keyboards and then can launch all sorts of stuff and just do nefarious things. So keyboards, by default, are isolated. That's actually what I ran into the very first time four years ago that I ran Cubes is I thought I was being super safe by Lux encrypting it. You know, physical physical security has to be the first thing you're thinking about. But then I shut down the computer, went away, came back the next day, turned it on, and great, I can't type in my password because the keyboard hasn't been presented to the system yet, and I can't present the keyboard to the system because I can't get into the box. So, yeah, I, I ended up abandoning cubes, and I was kind of expecting a very similar thing when I started out this time, but actually Lux encrypting is part of the um, process when you actually spin it up, and I didn't have a single problem running into it, so I'm glad that they were able to address that. Um, and it's really funny because I actually do own one of the Hack5 Rubber Ducky USB keys, and I did put it in there, and it did very much prompt me to, hey, are you sure you want to connect this? So I'm not sure really how the code works that they differentiate between the USB keyboard that's been connected the whole time and one that's being added. But props to them, they got it working. And those USB keys can be a huge security problem too. I have worked in places where they hot glue the USB port shut and only use PS2. 
just for that kind of reason. One thing that I, I liked about it that I was able to play around when I had the file. So I moved a file over to USB key, put it back in. It would spin up in a, you know, tell me which VM do you want to open it in? And I could open it up. And then from there, I could extract the files into a different VM if I was really worried about it. Or once I opened them and I knew they were safe, I could copy them over to like the workspace that I was working on. This is where Cube starts getting really complicated because you have your workspaces so you can move around. And then you have like your VMs that can be a work VM, a personal VM, an anonymous VM, whatever you want. Those are just the three defaults. And so trying to communicate to someone what you're actually clicking, what you're actually doing. Joe, you said you watched the video, and I don't think that's a fair representation because that's a power user showing you how it works. And somebody starting out is definitely not going to have that ease of workflow. Yeah, it's pretty rough going when you first get into it because you're looking at just this list of different VMs, which they call domains, and looking at the various applications that are included in there and thinking to yourself, okay, where do I start? But once you get going and start to learn how they all kind of interconnect and you can pass data from one to the other uh, after supplying a password, of course, to make sure that something isn't trying to do it automatically in the background, the workflow starts to present itself. And I don't know, I, I found that I was getting around in it pretty easily after a good eh, maybe hour or two of learning kind of how it works and how you're supposed to do it. How long did it take you to figure out how to install applications that would actually stay consistent? I think I was really kind of getting that working within the first hour uh, because I have used a lot of virtual machines in the past. So I do kind of have that knowledge of, okay, here's a VM. I need to install something in this VM so I can drop into a terminal. And considering that they include Fedora 29, Debian 9, and Hunix 14, uh, two of which I'm familiar with. I haven't really used Hunix, but I could drop into Fedora 29 and drop into a terminal and issue DNF commands to my heart's content. Now, the thing that took me a little while to find was once you dig into the settings for an individual VM, you can find the applications that you've installed in that VM and expose them to the menu. So I'm wondering if we did things a little bit differently because I figured out how to do that. But the moment I shut down the machine, obviously the VMs shut down and the programs were no longer there when we came back up because we were spinning new VMs up. I actually had to go into the templates and go into a terminal, spun up from the template, install it there so that the VMs would spin up with the new template with the new application that was installed. So I have to say that actually took me a while and I cheated and uh, watched the video that Joe was talking about and went, oh, well, that makes sense. And I do really like the template features that they have. It does make it really easy to spin up a new VM. But uh, I thought I was able to... Um do that just in any of the non-disposable VMs because those are supposed to be persistent. Oh, I'll have to try that again because it was my understanding that there were no non-disposable VMs. Like every VM was disposable and it was the templates that were really the only thing that was consistent. And, you know, it's kind of the baseline for the whole operating system, though I'm kind of hesitant to say an operating system because even Cubes OS themselves say really it's kind of Cubes as a whole system. It's something to go on top of Zen, at, you know, on a bare metal build. So 
Maybe there's a new term we should be using instead of operating system here? Well, they call it Cubes OS, and it doesn't mean ordinance survey, so uh, <laughs> it means operating system. So, yeah. But that does kind of speak to the fact that this is not for new, inexperienced users, is it? This is aimed at real power users who have a very specific use case, and that use case is security. This is not for the kind of person who wants to just install something like Ubuntu or Fedora and just go right ahead installing applications, browsing the web, playing games, stuff like that. This is for people working in the security industry and journalists who have to accept a lot of files from potentially dubious sources, it feels to me like it's a tool in your toolkit rather than a daily driver. I'd compare it a lot to Kali Linux because the only people who fully run Kali Linux as an everyday driver are people who are trying to learn it or just starting out because I think everyone I know just sees Kali as a tool in their box, not an everyday OS. So Honestly, I would love just to have an extra computer where I could just leave cubes running for whenever I needed that um, security or whenever I needed access to a Tor system without needing to worry about it. Um, yeah, it's just something to keep in the background, but I don't know about an everyday thing. I was thinking about that as well. I actually tried to spin it up in KVM because I would love to have this in a VM and just do nested virtualization, but I couldn't get it going. It would not boot the installer. It kind of feels like tails on steroids, really, because it's got all of that tour stuff if you want it, but then it goes beyond that with the, the VMs and the separation. So it, it is, I suppose, the most security-conscious distro I've ever tried out. It's funny that they describe themselves as a reasonably secure operating system. So I like that. I like that they're not making any claims about being super secure or whatever. And they do kind of admit that there is one potential weakness. If there are any security holes in Zen, then all bets are off, really. One thing I want to point out is that while, yes, with the speed issues and everything, most people won't consider it a daily driver, I don't see that there's any reason that you couldn't if you're very patient. Because since they include Fedora 29 and Debian 9, you do have a vast array of software that's available to you. Now, you won't be able to do anything that uses any uh GPU acceleration because there is no acceleration passed through, though they are discussing potentially enabling actual hardware GPU pass through for guests in the future. One last thing I wanted to bring up is I actually went and looked up who maintains their documentation. I'm a huge write the docs person, and there's an individual by the name of Andrew Wong who does this. And wow, he does a great job because everything I needed to find out was there. It was explained. It had screenshots. It had terminal shots. So when I decided that I wanted to install Fedora 30 and then I wanted to try to figure out how to put Ubuntu on there, it wasn't difficult. I just went and followed the guide that was already written. Were you able to get the Cubes tooling going in those newer versions? I didn't run into anything I couldn't do. Yeah, Fedora 30 was working just like 29. I had uh, my application VMs running off of it and everything. Oh, wow, that's great. Well, I feel like I could almost justify buying a new laptop to try things like this and uh, maybe retire my little Viva book, but no, I won't do. So let's have a look what we're going to cover next time then. Let's go to DistroWatch and click the random distribution button. And what have we got here? Okay, so uh, I think I've heard of this before. Um, PySci or PSI Linux, something like that. P-I-S-I Linux. It is a GNU slash Linux distribution based on the old Pardis Linux 
with its famous PySci package management system. Uh, it's an OS for desktops. Uh, it's based on, oh, it's independent, and it's got the KDE Plasma desktop, and it's from Turkey. So, oh, that sounds interesting. And looking at this screenshot, there seems to be quite a cat theme to this. Oh, now I'm excited. Oh, yeah. This looks wonderful. <laughs> yes, look forward to checking that out. That'll be fun. So, Drew, you are always going on about Plex and how great it is for viewing media and managing media and stuff. So I think we've all got to the stage now, haven't we, where we're kind of Marie kondo in it. We don't want all the DVDs and CDs lying around, so it's time to rip them. Or it's, well, that time has actually been and gone for me a long time ago. I'm all digital now. No um, discs, no actual bits of plastic around. And so you need some software to manage that. Now, traditionally, I've just used Samba and Kodi, or even just local media and Kodi. But Plex is a proprietary solution. We better get that out of the way first. But it does run on Linux. And you absolutely swear by it, don't you? I do. It sparks joy. So Plex forked from Kodi back when it was called XBMC. Uh, the, the Plex developers had contributed to the XBMC project, but ultimately they found that XBMC was going in a different direction than they wanted to go. Where Kodi is focusing on being the best local media player that you can get for free and probably better than most other paid solutions as well, in my opinion. It did not solve the problem of streaming media to other devices, especially over the internet. While you can set up Kodi to access things over FTP, that gets a little more techy. And I wanted to do things like share my media collection with my parents, my friends, both of you. And that's where Plex really, really shines. So once you get it stood up, there are apps for just about every device out there. I've got it on my Fire TV. I've got it on my phone. I can access it anywhere on a web browser. And it just works really, really well. So... I really, really love Plex. It's a great solution. Well, it is very, very easy to install, certainly on Ubuntu. I just snap installed. I think it's Plex Media Server, all one word. And that just worked perfectly. It When I went to start it, it just opened up a web browser and gave me this web interface, and I was able to configure everything. It did demand that I created an account, which I didn't really care for. But apart from that, it was just super simple to get running. How do you feel that it compares to Kodi as far as the user experience? Well, the first thing I did was install the Android app on my phone. Well, an old phone, actually, just to test it. And it wouldn't play more than a minute of any of the files without me paying them. So that was like, oh, right, okay, <laughs> won't be doing that then. But then I tried from a web browser, and it was just fine really it was just almost like a sort of youtube type interface i suppose more like netflix web interface really and yeah just worked absolutely fine just was flawless um presumably that's how you did it l because you connected to drew's vast collection i did um i say drew set me up for failure though um because i'd never used flatpak before and he's like, oh, it's really simple. You just, you know, copy and pasta, basically. So I went in and I tried it. 
But unfortunately, Pop! OS and Flatpak weren't kind of working with one another when it came to the GUI. And it's my fault. There was actually a warning on the bottom saying, you know, you have to do this through the command line. But I've been trying really hard to leave that behind and really stick to the GUI like most traditional users would. So it took me a while to actually get it up and installed. I couldn't find the snap pack or the snap install though. Well, and what you're talking about is the uh, GTK client that can be used for Plex, which is called Gearens, G-I-R-E-N-S. Right, but you don't actually need to install anything. You can just do it through a web browser. That's right. Okay, yeah. So I did open up, you know, Firefox and go in and log in. But I mean, I don't really, I'm not learning anything that way, right? You have to go through and install something. That's the point of the journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you didn't have any luck installing it then. I did, finally. I, I Once I just gave up on using the GUI and just went back to my command line ways, everything worked <laughs> smoothly. Y'all make it really hard to kick the command line when things just work that way. Well, I know. That's why I use the command line. I wouldn't even think of using a GUI to install it. My first thing is snap search Plex. And there were a few things there. Plex Media Server, that looks like it. Installed that uh, you know, for the server aspect of it. And then... I suppose I would do the same, but my I always go for a web browser first, If anything like this that could possibly work with a web browser, because why install anything when you've already got basically an operating system there already? That's These days, browsers are so complicated that it's like a mini operating system, and often things will just work perfectly, and sure enough, it did. Yeah, and I tried GearEnds as well, but honestly, it wasn't really doing it for me. I had a lot of screen tearing when I was playing the videos, um, which I have some in Firefox as well. Chrome works just fine without any screen tearing. But uh, kudos to the GearEnds project for making it because it is kind of a cool little thing where you can just launch up a little GTK app that's got you know everything included right there and syncs all of your play stats and everything. It's a neat little app, just I don't think it's quite for me. But that sharing stuff over the internet, that is the real kind of USP of Plex, isn't it? Because, as I said, you can do very similar stuff if it's just on your local network with Kodi. But if you want to be able to just leave your server running, and the server doesn't have to be a server, just any computer basically will do it, even an old laptop or whatever. But you just leave that running at home, and then you can just be at a friend's house or just uh, share your library with them or whatever. So I, I can see the appeal of it, but I don't know if it's worth the trade-off really of having to create an account and any time you interact with them, they're just trying to push the premium stuff all the time. And okay, they've got to make a living, fair enough, but it just it just feels a bit just proprietary and wrong to me when there are free software open source tools that can do most of it. I mean, how often do you actually take advantage of that playing it over the internet stuff? Since I share my collection with others, uh, I'm not personally taking advantage of it very often, but my parents watch my stuff all the time. And I've got friends who do, and you know, it, it definitely gets a workout over the internet. So yeah, often. But couldn't you, as someone who knows quite a lot about networking, quite easy to set them up Cody and Samba and stuff on your local network and you know do the port forwarding and everything I could but it's the kind of thing where I would have to then walk you know my 
60 plus year old parents through installing Cody on a set top box, which probably doesn't have it in its app store and have to walk them through, you know, connecting it to an FTP server and all of that. And since they live in Maryland and I live in Georgia, you know, it's not like I can just drive over there and do it for them. It's a lot more work. And the other problem is Cody doesn't natively transcode. It's not built to do that. Plex, on the other hand, when a client will request a file from a Plex server, will say, these are the codecs I can work with, and this is how much bandwidth I have. Please provide me the file in the best manner possible. And Plex will just do it. It transcodes on the fly and streams it, which is perfect. Because if somebody has, say, slow internet, it will downgrade the quality just like Netflix does. And it'll do that automatically. But that means you have to have a reasonably powerful machine to do the streaming and encoding or transcoding. You know, it doesn't really need to be that powerful, but if you're trying to do it on your own workstation and then you try to spin up like a video game or something like that, yeah, you're probably going to run out of resources pretty quickly. But I mean, I've, I've had it installed on pretty low power things. And since most stuff talks H.264, and that's a pretty uh, compatible codec that a lot of even processors will have some amount of hardware decoding and encoding for. It's really not that bad. Because you can run this on a Raspberry Pi, right? But you're probably going to have a bad time trying to transcode on that. Right. And for a lot of those use cases, a lot of people will just disable transcoding. Is that quite easy to do then? It is, but it's definitely a trade-off for how much bandwidth you're going to use. Mm. I noticed it's true that your collection is very well organized. Like if you've got sequels to a movie, they're kind of grouped together and stuff. Is that quite easy to manage? Oh, absolutely. It's an option that's directly in the web interface where you can just edit any piece of media and add a tag to it to add it to a collection. And then those collections, you can customize them even further by adding a cover photo if you want. It doesn't just do video, though. It can also do audio, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, growing up, I bought a lot of CDs, and uh, before I finally got rid of my DVD reader and my computer, I did go through and rip everything and uh, put it right in Plex, and now I can even stream it to my phone. You know, my biggest regret is ripping stuff to MP3 and not FLAC, because I didn't have the space at the time, but now I wish that I'd just gone for FLAC. Oh, I know the feeling. Most of my stuff is exactly like that. Yeah, when I first started as well, some of them were like 128 kilobit as well. So I'm just like face palming at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, that's um, that's the way it was back in the uh, early mid 2000s. Yep. Well, I don't think that I'm going to be switching to this for my media because I don't really. I don't know. I'm too selfish to share stuff with other people. Is the bottom line, and I think that you can do it with completely open source software on your local network, so that's what I'm going to stick with. But I, I do see the benefits of this and um, may well take advantage of it. But again, using my end, just completely open source software, all you need is a Firefox web browser and you can connect to it. Well, with that, we better get out of here then. Um, if you want to get all the future episodes, go to choose slash subscribe, and there's various ways there. And if you want to get in contact, choose slash contact. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Drew of Doom. And I'm at L underscore O underscore punk, at L-O punk. And I'm at Joe Russington. 
We'll be back in two weeks with more exciting discoveries. Mm-hmm.